Hello, friends. This is Andrew Sweeney from Parallax Academy. This is just a quick reminder to subscribe and like our YouTube channel and sign up for our newsletter to keep abreast of all of our activities. And if you want to get more involved, Parallax Academy has a membership program, coaching and mentorship, as well as several new courses and study groups. Come and join our convivial hub and network with some of the best thinkers, movers, and visionaries in the world today. And please consider contributing by becoming a patron or making a donation. Join us to help rebuild spirituality, rethink philosophy, and reimagine culture. Links to all of our activities are in the description below. Now, enjoy. Welcome, Shozhen, to, to Parallax. Parallax, we call it Parallax Academy. Welcome to this podcast. I'm very happy to talk to you. Uh, I reached out to you because a long time ago, I was a Zen guy in Montreal, and I met your teacher. And, um, and then I saw your YouTube channel. It just appeared in my algorithm, and it remind me, re reminded me of how much I love Zen and how much I love that particular tradition of Zen that, that you practice. So um, I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit, like we'll start right from the beginning, maybe, and, and start with like the big question is, what is Zen and what is Tathagatha Zen? This is, I think, uh, a word that Suzaki Roshi used um, yeah. to describe his Zen. And, and, uh, and I like this word, and I'm not sure if I know what it means. So Oh, dude, um, we're like jumping right into it. Like, there's yeah, let's there's just no jump. foreplay here, is there? No foreplay at all. No, I just that's that's how it goes here. Well, clearly, you're yeah, you're a guy who studied at or at least went to Mount Baldy and studied with one of Roshi's Osho's because, like, that phrase to Tagata Zen is just it, it's in the DNA of most of us who studied with Roshi. I, I mean, Tagata is a I I, so I think that Suzaki Roshi, my teacher. Um, kind of over the years ad-libbed that phrase into being. I think he was just kind of trying to put a handle on his, his insight and the way he wanted to express it. But technically the term Tathagata, it's a Sanskrit term and it means like thus come and thus go. So coming and going um, or left, right, up, down um plus minus is how roshi talked about it so he talked about how the dharma activity is this interaction of complementary but uh, opposing but complementary opposites in this interaction it's like me and you or this and that and you know his teaching was that's the simplest you can reduce <laughs> The it's a, that's the simplest way you can talk about it. Prior to that is the condition of zero he talked about. So that's the source. That's the dharmakaya. So the dharmakaya splits into this me and you, plus and minus, this and that. These opposing but complementary opposites. And they interact and give rise to new moments. Or in my case, so you're curious, we have an inside and then there's the outside. They interact and they give rise to a new self every moment. So <laughs> he, I think what he was trying to do was show how all things 
and all selves are conditional or co-arising from relationship always. So he's like destabilizing the, the monad, the object, the block, the thing. He's de-thingifying everything. And it's all part of this Dharma activity. Tathagata Zen describes this Dharma activity, and that is the relate relationship giving rise to all things. Does that make sense? Well, so Dharma activity is the de-thingifying. I like that. Uh, um, and and well, moving we into, rela- into relationship um, r- rather than you know moving out of let's say duality or one or oneness or a monad into into relationship. Yeah, I mean, so, he would, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we thingify things because that's what our brains do, right? Um, that's what our thinking mind does. I mean, I think the Sanskrit term for consciousness. I forget what it is now, but it almost means to break up or separate or thingify. That's what our brain does. But um, his my teacher's teaching to talk at the Zen was that's an illusion and it's 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 not a proper understanding. So he would he would say that you we stand unconditionally on what he called the I am self, and we objectify everything. So this Dharma this this teaching that he had was continually trying to show how relationship gives rise to everything and then everything dies back into relationship so for example i have a self that arises right now in this moment it arises and then it dies into the next moment the next few words the next instant of time right Mm. it's continually arising dying, rising, and dying. And it's rising from relationship. I can't give rise to it. I can't make it happen. It's a gift from the world that arises and disappears. And of course, in the long term, that's birth and death. Mm-hmm. Birth and death arising and disappearing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and is the Zen practice, I've heard this, and, and maybe it's just an intellectual idea, but, but is the Zen practice learning how to die, so, so to speak? Yeah, I was just doing a video. I was just literally editing a video half an hour ago about this. I mean, I, I remember I had this teacher, um, an Osho. He he's actually a Roshi now in a different lineage, but I remember him. He's from from Austria. He he would tell me, "You have to die into the cushion. This is all Zen practices. You're dying on the cushion over and over." So my teacher would say that all the time. Yeah, you're dying on the cushion, right? You're and you do that through paying attention. You you you're dying into the activity that you're doing, right? Like when you're sitting, it's just a very very simple activity. It's just breathing, but you're giving yourself to it. So that thinking, cogitating mind with that thrum of aggravation and self concern, like that's what you're giving to the sit. I mean, it's easy to do when we really love something, like you know, playing tennis or listening to Jimi Hendrix or making love. It's like easy to die into those activities. We can throw ourselves into them. No problem. We're in that flow state to use the contemporary vernacular, but, you know, harder things like sitting on a bus or waiting in traffic to drive your car. Like these are harder activities to die into. And in most of our life, it's, I mean, just my observation, I'm, I'm, avoiding things, looking forward to another activity, or I'm lost in my head. So I think Zen is trying to get rid of that scrim or that barrier of separation between me and my experience and and connecting. 
you know, yeah. but you can't, my teacher would say, you can't do that if you're, if you're believing or manifesting ego. And so that, so, so the ego has to die. So yeah, to answer your question, yeah, death. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I didn't give you a proper introduction again. I just jumped right into it. So, you know, in a way I apologize for that, but, but, um, but but you you said on your Twitter feed that you're a you're a, a priest a writer a bon vivant a confused renunciate a failed screenwriter a poet a stand up comic and a Catholic available for parties. Um, I, I guess you use a lot of humor in your in your uh, in your you know on your channel and and that there's a lot of humor in Zen um, and uh, you're 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 very self effacing but I I know you've also written a couple books and and that you're. That, that you are you're once an abbot of this this monastery so so um and, and you're telling me now that that you 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 know you're still having a hard time to to with your mind you know after all of those years in yeah. working in, in, a, in a monastery how can that be how come because i've seen i've seen a, a, a tasted some of the practice in mount baldy and it's intense right yeah well it's not my fault it's my mind's fault <laughs> i mean <laughs> my teacher used to say like you know, um, you probably heard him say this, I mean, because you've been to Mount Baldy, but he would say, you know, you can't stay in the heaven world forever because you got to use the bathroom and there's no restaurants in heaven. So it's his kind of homespun way of saying that, that you know, you, you have a good meditation sit and you answer a koan, you know, and then it's like that Jack Cornfield book, then you got to do the laundry you know, then the mind arises, there's a new self that arises and, and um, it's full of aches and pains and, and, and troubles. And um, so, it, yeah, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing practice, an ongoing journey. I, I, I don't know if it gets easier because there's new challenges in life all the time, but I definitely still struggle with ego and selfishness and and spite and envy and and all these things and the older i get the less i take any of it seriously but it's definitely still there i think i think people that one of the good things about being a free a spiritual free agent and not being not having a temple where i have to ask for donations and i have to please a board of directors and there are you know property bills. One of the good things about this is I can be honest about it because I know, I mean, I, I speak with teachers on the sly behind the scenes and it takes a while, maybe a few shots of sake, but sooner or later, they all admit to the exact same things. It's just really hard when you have a shtick and a community and a sangha that you're responsible for. It's hard to express your doubts because people are just looking to you for the answers and for inspiration. And you don't want to let them down and you don't want to give them sort of fuel for their despair or their doubt. You want to just provide a good face week after week after week, something to inspire them. So, but I, but I think it's, it's totally an un, underreported phenomenon, probably amongst everyone from the Dalai Lama to Mother Teresa back in the day, I think you have to struggle with, with doubt and your own ego, or, or I don't know, you're dead or you're a sociopath, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So what about, maybe you could give us a taste of, uh, about 
the training that you you endured at Mount Baldy, what what that was like? Well, you were telling me you had a seizure there, so clearly it was. Maybe yeah, I could tell you my experience in Mount Baldy, but but uh, but uh, I I went there to do a session, and I took a three hour bus ride from Montreal to get there, and I went to see the Roshi, and uh, I found myself in a very intensive atmosphere. And uh, then I found myself in the hospital. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so, and then I never went back. So, so I'm very sad about that. I really, really wish that I had been able to do that, Sashin. Yeah, I mean, they were intense. They were very, very intense. Um, I mean, you would, the practice, like for a session, so Sashin is, is your, is a week-long retreat. I actually forget what the translation of Sashin is. I think it just means like sitting with your mind or being with your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did die Sashins, which means great Sashin. So it's a week-long retreat, uh, intensive Rinzai retreat. And, you know, my teacher just did them sort of old school. I mean, he was a, you know, he, he was, in the monastery since he was 14 years old and and um, came to America, I think when he was 50, and he didn't really know anything but but these Rinzai Daisa Shin retreats. And that's what he gave us. So, you know, we'd be up at three o'clock in the morning and you had 10 minutes to get to the Zendo and in your robes. Um, and once you entered that formal practice space, it was just a, you know, it was an eco, it was entirely different ecosystem of, of, of rules and, or I should say forms. So you, so you, so you're never ever doing anything unintentionally in the space. So when, when you, you, you bow to enter the space, then you've got your hands in what we call gasho when you're enter, when you're walking to your cushion, you're walking in straight lines, not diagonally. You face the zendo, you bow when you sit down. So there's all this form so that your mind is always engaged in an activity and you're not lost in thought. That's the point of it. You're always doing something, you know, um, and giving yourself to it. So the practice is really easy and you're exhausted because you got up at three o'clock in the morning and you went to bed at 10 o'clock at night and you just give up and surrender to the form and to the body of practitioners that you're working with. Um, and you, you basically sit or yeah. do some form of meditation. You said you're always doing something, but it's a funny, but there's a kind of a paradox there because I think you spend about a third of the time sitting in Zazen doing nothing in a, in a way. Yeah. But watching your breath. Right. But that right. nothing is very engaging and <laughs> intense, right? Yeah, it's something, it's simple. Like we're definitely doing things they're just very, 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 it's the simplest things we can do. I mean, we, we sit, we walk, we listen to a Dharma talk, we engage with the teacher in koan practice, we chant, and we eat. Those, so I think those are the six things. I don't think we did anything else. I mean, you go to the bathroom, and sometimes there's formal showers. We even do formal showers. But um, everything is, 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 everything has a point and a form to it so that so that you've got jiki jitsus who are practitioners who are kind of keeping the keeping the practice tight and they'll correct you fix your form yell at you sharply if you're getting something wrong so yeah so you're always you're always engaged in this activity whatever the activity is you're you're engaged in it through the through in, in a practice way 
So you learn, you get out of your head. You, the practice grabs you and it pulls you fully out of your head and into your body and into the world around you. That's sort of the point of it. But it's it's a firm, severe, straightforward practice, right? There's no meandering. Um, it's straight up the mountain as opposed to taking the long circuitous route up the mountain. That's how it's been described to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember that in the Zendo, there was a, there's a masculine uh, figure, like a father, and that there's a feminine figure as well. So that there's a severity and there's and there's always you're, there's always this dance between severity and, and love or severity and compassion. Yeah, there's theoretically, yes. Theoretically, right, right. Theoretically, so, yes. So yeah. is that because it doesn't because it's it's hard to do when you you say theoretically or or well, I you know this is this is a food for contemplation. I'm not sure exactly why, but it seems like the more severe or strict aspect tends to lead more often than not. But that's my interpretation because the the different officers are supposed to completely balance each other out. So at the front of the walking meditation line, for example, you have the Jiki Jitsu, who, as I mentioned, is the strong, stern father figure of the Zendo. And at the very back of the line, you've got the uh, Shoji, who's the the mother figure of the Zendo. And if you have any problems, if you're having any issues, if you're constipated, if you're going crazy, if you forgot your medication, and you you know you go to the Shoji, and the Shoji helps you, the Shoji cares for you. The Shoji pours tea in the Zendo. Um, it keeps the Zen like in the morning, in the afternoon, we do tea. The Shoji pours tea. The Shoji serves you a little cookie at the end of Zendo in the evening. So yeah, the Shoji is taking care of you and supporting you and the jiki jitsu is is pushing you and, and sort of challenging you and these two energies are interacting in in the practice and you know it it, it mirrors what i talked about earlier that tathagata thus coming thus going um you know the the father energy and the mother energy combining and, and giving rise to new things or a, a, a session in the in the zendo example mm -hmm. So do you think that um, that this kind of practice is something uh, kind of perennial that it's it's all that it, or that it's adapted to now? In other words, the Zen that people are practicing in the 12th century or in the 15th century is it the same? I mean, is that or, or is it what's the difference between how Zen would be practiced now and 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 how it was practiced? in the past and is it an evolving process is zen changing does that need to change does it need to adapt does it need to um yeah it's a or what question. maybe what part of it needs to adapt and what part of it needs to be uncompromising so we do rinzai japanese rinzai zen which is a really you know it's it's very it's a type of zen um like my friend brad warner does uh Soto Zen, which is similar, but but a bit looser. A friend of mine studied in Korea in some mountain monasteries for a while, and she said it was so different. She said the Zendo was this big, warm cave. People are like, go in there and they pass out, or they're like sort of thinking and facing the wall and mumbling to themselves a little bit. <laughs> maybe once a week, you go see the teacher and the teacher maybe will yell at you or maybe ask you how you doing and serve you some tea, like a very informal, very informal atmosphere. Mm. Another friend of mine went to, went to see some Chan temples in China, and it was almost like 
the way the way he described it was like it was it felt Protestant to him. There were like members of the Communist Party in the front row. There was a big ceremony going on. There wasn't any sitting meditation. There was a lot of incense and a lot of talking. So like there's lots of different kinds of Zen. Yeah. The kind that we did, um, you know, it seems pretty traditional. And when I went to Japan to the monastery, Rinzai monasteries in Japan, it was very similar what we were doing to what they were doing. Mm. One thing I've discovered is that a lot of what they were doing um, and what they learn as monks in Japan relates to their function in Japanese society today, but more so the past, because this is really a sort of a waning tradition in Japan, I think, mm-hmm. just funeral ceremonies. So, you know, the Zen monks do the funerals. So, so you, you learn a ton of funeral, funeral ceremonies when you're in Japan. We learned a ton of funeral ceremonies and did funeral ceremonies at Mount Baldy. Um, but that's not something that relates to American culture at all. No, I mean, it does happen that you get called to do a funeral, but it's rare. Mostly people want to learn how to sit when they come to Mount Baldy or when I, when they ask me questions on YouTube, you know, they want to learn how to meditate. When I went to Japan, we did a lot of, of ceremonies. We, we, we did a lot of Sunday ceremonies at different Rinzai temples, but there was very, very, very little sitting. There's very little sitting Mm. I'm told by Zen Roshi's monks in Japan. So it's interesting. It does change. It does shift over time and in different cultures. I had the same experience in Japan. I went to a big temple in in, uh, Sapporo and it was huge. And then there was a tiny little place in the basement where a bunch of Westerners were doing Zazen. It was kind of hilarious in in this really tiny little place. You remember what, what, what what temple it was? I think it was a Soto temple. It was okay. it was uh, some some time ago, but I, it was in Sapporo, in the center of Sapporo, and there was a big Tendai temple next to it, and um, it, it just was it was huge and 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 uh, church like on the yes. inside. Yes. And then, but the but the I went there to because I wanted to do zazen, and and uh, right. I was surprised at how humble and, and sparse the, the whole zazen thing was and and that there was actually half half westerners who were there yeah so. it's very interesting people think when they think of of like zen monks meditation but when you get if you go to japan yeah not like exactly like you're saying not the case they they serve a function in japanese society and the meditation part is really just the four or five years they spend in the training temple like at the Myoshinji Temple Complex or um, uh, uh, Zuiganji is another one. You go there, you spend four years getting your butt kicked, um, getting hazed basically by the senior yeah. monks so that you you have the chops to take over your dad's temple. Because that's basically what these guys are doing is they're taking over their father's temple. So they go do some really hard training for a few years and then they go take over their dad's temple. And what do they do at their dad's temple? They take care of the graveyard and they do funeral ceremonies. So yeah, it's mm. interesting. I mean, in many well, ways, yeah. Sorry, uh, maybe maybe the next question then would be like, what about American Zen or what about Western Zen? What about Zen in Europe? What is the state of Zen in Europe? What is the state of Western Zen? What, how does it fit into this culture? How is it, how is it going to fit into this culture? Like what's going on with Zen at the moment? I don't know. I'm totally out of it. I was 13 years. I was a full-time monk um, and a priest and a abbot. And I 
you know, sang the Zen song and danced the Zen dance. And I'm really happy to, like I said, be a, a, a free agent now. Um, I, I, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, there's, there's lots of Zen groups. It's usually Soto. Uh, and it's, you, you know, mostly the groups that I've come in contact with are, you know, teachers that, that studied with uh, somebody who studied with maybe Shunryo Suzuki or somebody at the San Francisco Zen Center. So there's a lot of these like root Zen teachers from the 60s and 70s, Shunryo Suzuki and um, Sasaki Roshi, my teacher, and uh, the Korean Zen master, Sun Sanim. So a lot of these mm -hmm. teachers, they they had uh, Maizumi Roshi. They, they taught and then their priests now have students that they've ordained as teachers. So it's people with little sitting groups. Um, you know, Zen hasn't penetrated American or European culture the way I think like mindfulness culture has, or maybe the Shambhala tradition did before their scandals, um, or the, um, the uh, insight meditation community. I mean, that's a community that I think did something really interesting. Uh, Joseph Goldstein and his crew, I forget, forget the other guys, like their teachers told them, their, their Burmese teacher, I think they were, they were studying in Burma. And then their teacher said, we're, we're done. You go do it your way in America. And so, you know, Joseph mm -hmm. Goldstein came to America and just slowly started doing his, his, his own thing and spirit rocks and uh, meditation center with Jack Cornfield. I mean, these are some of the people that really, when you, when I think about, when I think about the state of like meditation culture in America, I, I, I think more along those lines, maybe John Kabat-Zinn and the um, mindfulness based stress mm -hmm. reduction, that whole community seems to be very popular, but but it seems like Zen is still kind of on the outskirts a little bit. And, you know, it had a reputation in the maybe the 60s and the 70s for being wild. I mean, Mount Baldy, where I studied in the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s, it was a completely wild place. I mean, people would go into Dusan's and practice on acid. They would charge my teacher and attack him. And he'd you hear these stories about Roshi, he'd flip them around and flip someone onto his lap and spank them with his stick and everybody was sleeping with everybody. It was, you know, very wild. Right. And then I think Zen culture became more buttoned up and more strong. Yeah. Um, but it, I don't, you know, it's like, it's hard to turn Zen into something that's mainstream and that's palatable for, for your average American, because it's, there are not a ton of teachings. There are not a ton of like, it, there's not a ton of teachings. Like it's sit, just sit. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. if you're lucky, you've got a good teacher you can interact one-on-one -on -one with in koan practice, right? But but other than that, it's, it's um, you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps in the practice. And so I, I feel like it's still kind of this, the ugly antisocial uncle in the corner of the room in terms uh -huh. of mainstream yeah. American spirituality. I remember I, I asked it like I was, I did his Korean Zen retreat and I asked the teacher, I says like, what's going on? Why is, why are there so few people here? And there's all these people at the, doing that, the, this, uh, there was this other kind of German Lama there. Um, and I said, I said, at least I, 
I realized that in the tantric tradition, they have 84,000 different tantras or something like this. And instead you have two or three. So he said, oh, it's just not attractive to people. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't give anybody, uh, it might be just as profound as the other stuff, but it doesn't give you, uh, it doesn't give you kind of what, doesn't give you a big feast of what you want. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally sense. right. Yeah, I mean, there's really is this idea, especially in the Rinzai, well, actually, maybe only in the Rinzai tradition, like, you sit, and you you interact with the teacher. And, you know, there's, there's, there's the idea, or the, I don't know what you would call it. Um, there's the idea that you need to have some kind of insight on your own. Uh, and that's the point of con practice. It's the point of being pushed so hard at a place like Mount Baldy is that it gets you out of your comfort zone and maybe really out of your comfort zone and you can glimpse something that that is that is beyond the self, right? I mean, that's what it's really trying to trying to get you to do. And the 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 teaching is in Zen, it's you know, it's it's outside of scripture, um, no special books beyond words. You, you need to expand experience it you really mm. need to experience it and and you know my teacher was adamant about that and if if you don't have the experience it's just words it's just talking and it's uh it's you 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 go you go like a ghost among leaves and grasses i think in, in the graveyard i think that's what they say in the uh, one of the koans you're mm. like a ghost amongst the leaves and grasses mm. um so maybe what is it about you said America was you know not sort of not mainstream America definitely not ready to embrace Zen or whatever. What was it about you personally that uh, that drove you to be able to do that? Because because in a way it's 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 the opposite of a consumer culture, you know, living at Mount Baldy. It's you couldn't you couldn't be as far from. A consumer culture, I think, as as you could be in the stripped down and intense monastic, you know, environment at Mount Baldy. So yeah, what, I mean, what, I was, you, why did you do that? Why did I you want to do that? Failed my way up the mountain. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like I think you get up there by steps, you know. I mean, I studied. I was always a seeker, you know, and I studied philosophy in college, and um, it was a great books program with an emphasis on on like Aristotle and Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas. It was a Catholic school, Plato, Augustine. You know, so it was just a lot of heavy, dense Western philosophy that I, I felt like just was not food for living. So I just kind of threw all that aside. I wanted to be a writer. So I wound up in California to work on screenplays, you know, and it was about a decade of being kind of, lost in Hollywood and during the day and at night finding different meditation groups. So first there was a um, the, I think it's the Lama Oli Nidal was that group. Um, and you, yeah, you know, that's the Lama I was speaking about earlier who, who I was talking to. He has big groups in, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, all, yeah. All, over, all over Europe. Yeah, sure. Let yeah, me, I started yeah, with that. Yeah, him. he's really big here. And really weirdly, now it's like I've come full circle. I live in Vienna and right down the street is is like Lama Oli Nidal's, like one of his main temples. It's kind of interesting uh -huh. to been there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I started with that group. And it, to be frank, it felt a little bit culty to me after a while. So then I went on to Shambhala and I spent you know, three or four years just studying with the people there. And then one day I left and never came back. And I found this little postcard 
in a coffee shop. And it was like one of these cheap homemade things. And that was my, eventually became my mentor in Zen practice. So I went to his sitting group and it was just like in a parking garage. So it was some kind of community room in a parking garage. And like the community room smelled like urine and it was like cars honking in the parking garage. But this guy had transformed that space. I mean, there were just like three or four black square Zabutans and then some round Zabutan cushions on top. And he had just a, a vase and like a single white rose in it. And he was sitting there in these tattered robes, just like this presence. I mean, and, it, and I remember I walked right past the room when I saw him because I was like, holy crap, I need to digest this. I had this feeling like, okay, here we go. And so that's how I wound up on my Zen path. And when I met him, it was like, this is a different kind of person than all these other people that I've been studying with. Like, he has this lineage in his in his bones, like it goes all the way down. And, and it wasn't in necessarily, you know, what he said um, or what his credentials were, but it was how he carried himself in many different settings and how alive he was and how connected he was, how vibrant and interesting and and um, puckish, uh, really just a, a, a trickster and a saint at the same time and a, and a little devil. I mean, I, I, so that was how I got into So I wanted, I wanted what he had. So that's yeah. through him. I met his teacher and then I started to get it. Oh, this, this is a big, strong wave of a tradition and it like crashes over you and sweeps you along and, and changes you. And so I did my first retreat up at Mount Baldy and I hadn't even really done that much sitting. And it was, I mean, it was, it, 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 I mean, it was so hard, but I came out of it in a, like on another shore of, you know, I was totally transformed. So I was like, okay, I'm going. So I just left my life in Hollywood and moved to the mountain. It was probably like three months later and stayed there for 13 years, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, so, and then when you, and then why did you leave then? Why are you not still there? I wrote a book that they all hated trying to go basically. Um, I mean, it, yeah, that was my, so I was single white monk. So my teacher is a long story, but his sexual misconduct in our community caught up with him at the end of his life and it got exposed. And there was a, after it was much a much overdue scandal. Um, and the community started falling apart in many ways. And it, you know, we had something special for a long time and there a price was paid and then a price was paid for that. And then like the bill came due at the end of my teacher's life. So the community fell apart and I wrote about all of that. And ultimately I knew that I couldn't stay in my role as like the head monk at this, at our home temple, talking the way I was talking in my book. It just wasn't appropriate. It wasn't what people wanted me to do. So that was why I left ultimately. And, and for, I'm fortunate. It was time for me to go. I, you know, I, it was time for me to go. You don't stay at a Zen monastery forever. You do your 10 year run you start off as like a student, then you become a chicken monk where you learn all the officer positions, then you become the head monk, and then you become a priest. And when you become a priest, which I did in 2010, it's like 
you're sticking around a little bit too long now. You don't belong at the training center anymore. So your days are numbered. You need to go out and share what you've learned in some capacity. So I had to stick around a little bit longer because my teacher was dying and I was helping to take care of him. I was one of a couple of people who was taking care of him. So I stuck around a little bit longer, but after he died and I saw sort of the state of the community and there had almost begun to be a religion of Sasaki that was growing up in his absence. And that didn't jive with the things I'd written about in my book. So it was just time to roll. <laughs> Hmm. So how do you how do you hold those two things together? I mean, I, you obviously owe tons to your teacher, and then you're, I guess, able to criticize him at the same time. Uh, how, how are you able to keep those two things together? I don't know. I mean, there, it's just what is, you know, so I have to keep them together. Right. I mean, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I had the experience. Um, I mean, I don't mean in any way to diminish like mostly women, I mean, women who experienced, um, you know, what they experienced with him that was negative. Um, but when that hit our community, it was like, there was no way to put Roshi up on a pedestal for me. There was no way to, to put him up on the, on the pedestal that maybe I had had him on. Um, and that was a real gift because then that meant I was free, you know, and, and I mean, if he could do that kind of behavior, if he could just, you know, commit sexual misconduct and not really see that it was causing suffering, I'm, I'm taking a lot of liberties here. I, I you know, I'm not, I don't want to speak for him, um, but, but in any event, I, you know, I had to, I have to hold those two things and, and I have no choice. Right. And, it, you know, it's really, it's allowed me to just be free to do what I'm doing now to say what I want to say in my videos to live the life that I want to live. Um, like I don't have his ghost over my shoulder telling me I'm doing something wrong. Cause I could just be like, dude, you're, you're, you know, <laughs> clean your own side of the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe part as part of the training is, is like letting go of attachment to a teacher. Is that, is that, yeah, Maybe, for sure. perhaps that is part of part of part of Zen training fundamentally, or I would, it I would is. imagine. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. But it's like easier said than done. And if, you know, I mean, I see people, especially in the Rinzai tradition, like there's a really great teacher who I've worked just a little bit with in Europe or interacted a little bit with um, a guy from Japan, um, uh, you know, like a really heavy hitter Rinzai Zen teacher from Japan and just occasionally being in that community and seeing people interact with them it's like wow it's 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 so easy to put the teacher on a pedestal i can see these people doing it and i can see them it's like life of brian right when they're projecting all these things onto brian in that monty python movie he loses his shoe and they hold up the shoe and they're like it is a sign that we must lose our shoe people get this type of mentality around these these japanese rinzai zen teachers and um it, so so it usually doesn't happen that you let go of your attachment to the teacher the teacher stays mm -hmm. on top and you wind up sort of sycophantic so um, yeah. yeah that seemed to happen that seemed to have happened everywhere in the buddhist community yeah in, in, around that same time it seemed that all of these major teachers from the east you know 
<laughs> we're having a hard time in America or or giving other people a hard time or you know is how do how do you account for all that like what is that what's going on there I don't know I really can't say part a lot of it I think you mean you're talking about like all the teachers like sexual misconduct with their students well we have you we, we could name a list of maybe 20 or you know yeah. 30 or you know there's there's a huge amount you know and yeah. maybe some of them were 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 innocent. Maybe some of them, you know, maybe some of them were scapegoated. Maybe some of them were not, you know, you know, uh, but, but, but it seems to be that I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's the state of, of the West in general, that, that causes this, this, this dynamic to arise or, or, um, or just the, the relationship of, of the teacher student guru, you know, what's, what's going on? What, how does this happen? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, when I went to Japan, um, that the teacher at the main training temple, um, oh, this guy was was very interesting. That Roshi at one of the main training temples um, had a sort of a pseudo wife down in the village. They weren't married. I mean, but he had impregnated her, so she was pregnant with his child. This guy was a raging alcoholic. Uh, I mean, literally raging. I mean, like he had come to America and. Um, he was part of this funeral ceremony for my teacher. And it was like two in the afternoon, the day of the funeral. And I'm like rushing around to get everything in order. He's like, hey, come here, Psst, come here. I'm like, oh, it's Roshi, I better go. And he's like, got any alcohol for me? So so it's definitely not just a West, Eastern teachers oh. being West. Like a lot of these guys are pieces of work in their own communities, right? But they mm. don't have female students, for example, like this, this Roshi had to escape, he had to jump the wall of his training center and go down into the nearby village in order to get that woman pregnant. But, you know, when you've got a situation where you've got these guys who, who grew up in these very sort of traditional Japanese monasteries with, with no women around, no female students, uh, and then they're suddenly in the West alone in a room with doing koan practice with adoring female students one after the other month after year after decade in a system that doesn't really i mean the zen that i've encountered doesn't have strong moral uh sexual moral rules right i mean yeah. my mm -hmm. teacher's attitude around it was like do what you want to do but you will have to take responsibility for it i mean that was generally his the flavor that he gave off to me with regards to how he thought I should approach sexuality. Do what you want. You will have to take responsibility for it. So, yeah, well, that's a big question. I wonder just about sexuality in general, because there, there, you know, uh, it, there seems to be, it seems to be a problem. <laughs> I don't know what, what else to say about that. And, and you know, in every single, uh, every, every which way you look at it, um, you know, the one thing I, I almost wonder if if people should be having more sex or and these and these and, and they should be allowed to have sex or the, there should be some tantric sex going on somewhere so that people can at least uh, you know understand what it is and and work with the energies of it and yeah kind of but then those tantric communities obviously have their own problems and yeah they always do all these communities always do there's some intimate link between sex and spirituality they're they're both sacred and they're both profane they're somehow they're so intimately linked you know, you, you can't avoid it. And so many people that I worked with made mistakes in, in the realm of sexuality when they, when they were monks, just sleeping with the wrong person, getting in 
horrible relationships. I, I was one of them. I got into a relationship within a practice context that was just a nightmare, you know? And in retrospect, I'm really glad that I did because I think I worked through some emotional <laughs> issues of the heart through that relationship in the practice context. So maybe it's just inevitable. I will say this, like the biggest mistake that I think our community made was brushing the stuff under the carpet, you know? Like we were really open about how difficult our monastery was. You know, we were open about a lot of things, but when it came to Roshi touching women and whatever else happened, um, we we weren't honest about it. Our community wasn't honest about it. Um, I mean, people would be really honest with me when I would ask them directly, but it was it was sort of an open secret. And I think that open secret quality to the thing was what killed us. I mean, if Roshi's touching students, you know, whatever. I mean, on some level, you know. But if everybody's kind of not talking about it and then there's a problem, a woman has a problem and she doesn't know who to go to, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think that's when you, yeah. that's when you rot. That's when you get just, you get, you get a demon. I mean, I talked about it in my book, Single White Monk. It becomes like a, the energy, that kind of repressed energy over and over, it becomes like a kind of demon that haunts the community and eventually explodes. And it exploded in our case in a huge scandal in, in a massive dis, situation of disharmony within our Sangha. And the Sangha kind of dislocated and never really came together again. I mean, that was the end of the community. So, you know, you, you reap what you sow and you can't have these things going on without there ultimately being um, some kind of, of uh, you know, bill that is due sooner or later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about just maybe changing the, the, the subject a little bit? What, what, a, a lot of the way you communicate and what what I like about your, your channel is you communicate profound ideas through, through humor. Um, what, what's your, like, what's the relationship of Zen and humor? I don't know. My, yeah, there's, there is a relationship. Like, like, like I loved how, when I first went to the monastery, how funny the monks were and how funny like Leonard Cohen was, for example, I loved he was a monk at our monastery for a while. Yeah. And that his poems about Zen are so funny. Um, he, there's a kind of almost like an absurd, uh, I don't know, humility slash hope, joyous, jolly hopelessness in the Zen. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, kind of that cosmic laughter that's really important in the tradition. I mean, really important. Um, and you're you're right. I mean, it is it is part of the it is part of of Zen more more so than maybe many religions that I that I know of. Um, what do you mean by cosmic laughter? That's an interesting well, phrase. That big laugh that like you're just not gonna win. You can't win. You know, you're not gonna have the satori that makes you understand complex mathematical formulas as well as the deep problems that you had as a child, as well as um, how everything is one. You know, we come to the cushion with all these um, expectations, you know, and 
And the practice just keeps thwarting them and thwarting them and thwarting them and thwarting them and thwarting them over and over and over, negating, negating, negating. I mean, the Christian word is apophatic. It's negative. It just keeps taking away, taking away, taking away. And you just got to laugh. There's nothing left. And that's your Zen, whatever that is. There it is. That's your Zen. But that's strangely, strangely what you want, or that's strangely joyful, right? Yeah. 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 Because you didn't need it. You didn't need it. You're perfectly fine. You're seeing through the this like mechanical nature of, uh, of of your ego, and it collapses, and and you find some joy. <laughs> yeah. Not in pursuing what you what you what you think you want, or right, right, and you just gotta laugh. You just gotta laugh. It was all it was here all along. You know, here it is. Mm -hmm. I don't. Yeah. Why is the sitting practice so important in Zen? Why is it so? Why do you guys spend like one third of your life sitting in lotus position, in your hands and like this, and yeah. and then why? You know, it, it for me, for me, it was important because I mean, it's like when you're an unruly boy, you got to go sit in the corner for a while. I mean, my mind wouldn't stop, and so I had to learn how to how to how to um how to calm down how to focus and put myself into a simple activity um over and over and over and let all that stuff come up like if i don't know if i hadn't done that practice i don't think i could have ever stopped looking for the answers right because um i wouldn't have seen that craving, desperate uh, ego energy, the way I did just sitting on the cushion and you can't move, you can't go get a cup of coffee, you can't get on Amazon and purchase another book that's gonna give you the answers, you can't watch another YouTube video that's gonna give you the answers, you just have to sit there and this energy, this craving and striving comes up and you can't do anything with it, right? You just, you just have to get familiar with it and get used to it day after month after year on the cushion. And eventually it's like, oh, there it is again. I'm not gonna act on that when I'm in the world. You know, you, you get used to it and see it and um, that energy gets spent. I don't know how else I would do that other than sitting and doing nothing on the cushion. Mm -hmm. It's just really just just, doing a simple thing completely, you know? I mean, the old yoginis in India, maybe they stand on their one foot for three years, right? They commit to that or they decide not to speak for 10 years, right? It's like just committing to one crazy thing. And Zen, we just commit to that sitting still, right? I don't know if it's necessarily that, that special. I mean, you could do Thomas Keating's centering prayer, where you're just, you're saying the name of Jesus over and over and over, you know, I think just giving yourself to one practice that's very, very, very simple is that's kind of the spirit. But what I like about Zazen is you, it's just, it's close to nothing as possible, right? There's no tricks and there's no mm -hmm. shtick. There's no mantra, you know, it's just breathing breath you know and there is what about the cons what what what's the what are the function of, of that and what well, is the, what is the beauty of that or what is the okay so so what i was going to just say was the so so with the zaza and the breathing the meditation it, you, it really it, it actually i want to amend what i said a little bit it is special in the sense that 
you know, you're doing this exhaling and inhaling, exhaling and inhaling. And for me, that got me out of my head because I was literally inside was going out, outside is coming in, right? And I had strong barriers, really strong barriers between me and the world, you know? And zazen helped me break those down. Now, when you go in to do koan practice, you're manifesting your zazen with your teacher. That's kind of what's going on. So it's just a way for the teacher to check in with you to make sure you're not totally spaced out. And it's a pretext to interact so the teacher can kind of sh show you where you're at um, and, and help you learn the teachings on a deeper level. That's what all the 1600 koans are about. Learning and being able to manifest the, 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 the principles of Zen practice on, a, on deeper and deeper levels. That's theoretically what, what koan practice is about, what that, what that lineage is for. Mm -hmm. And does that, and you go deeper and deeper, but does it, how does that function in terms of how does that change you? How does that, you know, as, as opposed to just sitting? Um, yeah. What what is the what is the koan practice like? I, I've had a little bit of a taste of it, but I haven't gone very deep into it, so I I don't really know. Like, you know, um, you know, you know, it's maybe this is a really bad example, but I was watching that Beatles documentary by Peter Jackson, you know, mm -hmm. and um, at one point there's like a, a journeyman musician who comes in to play with them, and then there was some b-roll footage somewhere where they were interviewing him and he was like man it was he's like i had no idea like that kind of music was possible until i was in the room with those guys and vibing with them and playing with them i think for one thing that's kind of what the master helps you to do in koan practice it's just like can can, can you know on a good day and maybe if you've got a connection um show you something or manifest something that you wouldn't just see sitting on the cushion, staring at the wall by yourself, you know, session after session. You got somebody who's really good at um, looking a student in the eye and reflecting back to that student where they're at and being just a little bit, and, and knowing where you're at. That's the other thing that's really interesting about a Roshi that I, I found with my Roshi is he, a lot of times he seemed to know where I was at because maybe he had been there and in a similar place, you know? And, and so it was like, Oh, okay. Okay. I get what he's saying. I, I, I get, I get where he wants me to go with this. And, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's like having a master. It's learning from a master yeah. on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah, I was talking to this guy named Zach Stein, and he, and he wrote a book about education. And he said that one of the problems we, that they have today in America is that we we don't we don't have we don't have we have a crisis of authority, right? Mm -hmm. So so people don't want to learn from anybody. People think they could figure it out for themselves. Yeah, and uh, and I noticed that. Like I'm a teacher, I noticed that with students that 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 they 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 don't want to learn from an authority they want they they they, they believe they that their authority is just their experience but um, right right yeah yeah so there is this issue of a master and that seems to be a problem right in the west yeah. um, um for people <laughs> you know they say that you have to you sort of you project all these qualities onto the teacher onto the master and then you have to reclaim them um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, I, I have an anti-authoritarian streak that's that's pretty wide. 
And it was, I really respected my teacher. I really respected him. And he was the, he was, he was, he earned that respect and, and he did good by me and he, and he fulfilled his end of the bargain. So I have no complaints, but it, you know, it was hard to, yeah, it's, it, it can be hard to have a, you know, quote unquote master and to keep getting wrung out of Sanzen room and to sort of, in some instances, question your own intuitions and, or instincts and wonder if you don't need to, um, contradict the teacher or the master in, in one circumstance or another. This is another good reason why it's dead to have a, the best kind of teacher is a dead one. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't correct, you're free of them, finally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember I remember reading in an art in an interview with uh, Leonard Cohen and Suzaki Roshi, he kept apologizing to Leonard Cohen for living so long. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I lived so long. Because yeah. uh, he lived to be 108 or something, right? Yeah, he was 108 when he died. And yeah, he did used to do, used to apologize. I'm, I'm still here. I'm sorry, we got to do another retreat. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Hmm. So were you, were you friends with, with Leonard Cohen? You know, I'm a singer songwriter myself, an amateur singer songwriter. And, and back in the day I sent Leonard my, 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 uh, my uh, cassette tape demo. Um, <laughs> I sent it to Mount Baldy. I was, I was young and, and arrogant. And, um, uh, and uh, I even invited him to one of my shows once when, when he was in, in, in Montreal, but, but what, what, what is your relationship with Leonard? What do you, what do you, do, do, did you, were you guys, did you guys know each other? Were you close? Were you friends? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, okay. So he was, so he was around when I first went to the monastery and then he, he was, I, I, I briefly met him uh, in Los Angeles and then it seems like he disappeared for a while. And I think he was studying with um, uh, Nizar Gardat's translator or one of his dharma heirs Ramesh Balsakar so he moved Ramesh Balsakar yeah 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 mm. he was in India for a long time and then you know cut to 10 years later I um I was a monk and we were down in Los Angeles he just like showed up out of nowhere uh and this Jikon was back you know I mean we all loved him of course we loved his music and his humor and um you know, it was great. It was like having him around, like legitimized us because we always felt like such freaks. So, so, you know, and then what happened was when my teacher, Suzaki Roshi got really sick, uh, I was taking care of him with his Inji or attendant. And she had this instinct to just call Leonard because Leonard can like open doors and we needed help with Roshi. Like he was really sick. Um, mm. And we, you know, so she called Leonard. Leonard came immediately and did open doors. Like she got him into um, a really good room at Cedar Sinai in Beverly Hills. And after that, it was just Len, he was just part of our team. The three of us were taking care of, of Roshi, uh, Leonard, uh, the NG, and myself. And it was kind of a really neat time. Like, we would have, you know, Leonard would bring like Jewish food um, from Greenblatt's Deli like once a week, you know, and we have like beef tongue and um, chicken soup and or bring like... Um, I remember he was very fond of smoked meat sandwiches in Montreal and he would bring them to the vegetarian, uh, really? <laughs> you know, or mostly vegetarian Zen Center. Yeah, he would bring oh, really? these yeah. like, uh, like uh, from the 
from the the delis in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. So so you know, and, and so we spent a lot of time together. Like his Leonard's assistant would go off with Roshi's assistant to the Korean spas, and then would just be Leonard and I and Roshi, and Roshi would fall asleep. And you know, I, at the time, I didn't quite get how special it was because I just kind of thought of Leonard as a like a as how he described himself, which he was just kind of a bad monk, you know? I mean, I knew I mean, I loved <laughs> yeah. music and his writing and everything, but I thought he was just kind of a bad monk in a lot of ways. Um, that was, that was the prism that I viewed him through, but, but. You mean he, because he was uh, coming and going or. or yeah, he was or, coming and what, going. What, made, what makes a bad monk anyway? Oh uh, yeah. I'm, I'm re- I, I shouldn't have said that because it's so, I, I was a pro, I was like, you know, I was one of these Mount Baldy assholes, you know, I was like, you're all, you gotta be all in or nothing. So, you know, Leonard had come and he would, had gone and he did sort of half the schedule when he was at Mount Baldy and the other half, he was composing music in his, in his um, cabin. And, um, you know, I didn't cut him any slack just cause he was Leonard Cohen. It was like, you mm-hmm. know, he didn't, asked to be cut in slack like he was a really humble dude and he was like yeah i kind of you know i couldn't do it all i always couldn't do the whole schedule and i always had to kind of leave and i you know so <laughs> yeah so in that sense it was a bit a bad monk i guess but 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 the but i'm I, i'm really happy that i saw him that way because i and i didn't have stars in my eyes because then we would just talk about writing um and talk about music and talk about his time with ramesh balsakar which was really really interesting um, and it was really nice to just see an example of like a wise artist, not like a bitter old has-been or some old rock and roller who's trying to sleep with the help or something or <laughs> yeah. glory days. I mean, he was a he was a very sagacious man, a humble man, funny. Um a really good example, like a really good example for how to grow old and as a writer, you know, as an artist. Mm, mm. With uh, dignity too. I remember his last concerts, uh, they were they were almost religious experiences. And I'm yeah. sure that he, his Zen training came came into how he presented himself and, and uh and I guess the uh the level of detail and just the the formality of the whole thing. Even the way he sang, I'm sure, I'm sure Zen had a big influence on on how he, especially in the last period of his his um, artistic life. Uh, yeah, we 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 talk about that. Um, yeah, because it got kind of crazy. He came back, I think, from India because he got ripped off by his manager. That's a whole yeah. She, they, they, yeah, I mean, it was a bad scene. So he so he had to make money. So he started writing music and touring and like he would talk about how he's like yeah roshi was an inspiration like this old guy roshi doing these retreats at 100 years old like throwing himself into it hour after hour after hour he said that's my inspiration for getting up on stage for and just giving everything i can as a as an as he said an an 80 year old man just a kid with a dream (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 that's yeah that's the leonard that's very nice Hmm. Well, we're coming up to about an hour, and maybe I can invite some of the uh, the folks who who are listening to um, if they want to ask ask you any questions. Yeah, great. It's, hey, John, how are you? Yeah. Hey, good to actually speak to you. Uh, yeah. Sure. Good to meet yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm anxious for your novel to get finished uh, sometime. No, no, I'm fine. <laughs> um, I'm, 
I'm curious, you know, I, you know, the sense of spiritual free agent just really resounds to me because being a minister, I've seen it from this side, the veil, you know, I've often thought of my work as being something like the Amway Corporation, you know, with kind of a pyramid scheme of filling the forms, how many people, how many, how much money. So that aside, being a free agent, what's your practice look like now? What, what is it? What, how would you describe it? Um, and it, does it involve community? How do you maintain discipline? Because yeah. those are two factors for me that seem to be very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a really good question. Like, for what, first of all, yeah, I felt that spiritual Amway thing as well. I felt like a lot of the times, like I was pulling people in on a pyramid scheme, and half my Dharma talks were selling people on the idea of meditation. Um, and I don't know that there's any easy way around that. Uh, so that was one of the reasons I, I, I was sort of happy to leave. One of the problems with leaving is exactly what you're talking about. Like you never have the same, like your practice is never the, my practice has never been the way it was when I was a monk. There's just no, when you're a monk or maybe when you're a pastor, like you are full time and you're serious about your tradition and your lineage and your sangha, your parishioners and your practice in a, in a way that you just aren't as a layperson. So my practice comes up in, in weird ways. Um, I will sit by myself a lot, not necessarily every day, but mostly I'll take a, a, a minute here, 30 minutes there, an hour there. Um, sometimes it's just if I'm on the train, I'll do my zazen on the train sitting there and I'll try and do that periodically or when it comes to me. Um, and it almost seems like in those moments, like it's a fully alive again, like fully alive as, it, as much as it ever was when I was, was a monk. Um, I have a community here that I'm, that I'm close with and friends with a lot of the people and I will sit with them. Um, and I've led a couple of retreats for them and done a couple or more than a couple uh, retreats with them. So I have a community out here, so I'm lucky in that sense. Um, but we have, once you step out of that role as a, as a teacher or a pastor, it's like you're in the human world and, and your practice is never the focus, again, the way, at least for me, the way it was when I was a monk. And, and that there are good things in that and bad things in that. Like I, I wouldn't trade, I couldn't have stayed in that environment any longer. I was just chomping at the bit to get out. Yeah. Well, as a, as a as a leader at the monastery, did you often feel like you weren't experienced? You know, as a pastor, I mean, the practice, you know, it feels like I'm doing the show. You know, yeah. it's like it's like I'm the the producer, the actor, the writer, and and I, you look at the people in the pews and say, well, they've got it easy. I mean, they they right. can come and enjoy this experience. Is it the same thing at the at the at the monastery? Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, I lost you. Oh, there you are. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what just happened. I think we're. Still... I just removed the spotlight so we can okay, open okay. it up to the. Okay, to the okay. It, sorry. I, yeah, it, anything's okay. Um, hold on. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so when, when, once I be when I was the head monk, like you know, I always say you get demoted to positions of authority at a monastery, and when I was the head monk. Um, I more and more, I felt like my whole 
freaking practice was just making the space, making the teachings and making my teacher available to the community. Like I almost didn't have a practice myself, uh, you know? I mean, I did because I had to go through the motions. I had to do ceremonies. I had to go to the Zendo to sit. I had to do con practice with my teacher, but there was, it was like being a harried mother. I, I couldn't focus on my own practice at all, which is kind of interesting. Actually, in many ways, my practice is much, much better now because I can be selfish about it. So yeah, when you're, you're doing your thing, you're putting on the show, you're, you're, you're taking care of everybody. You know, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to actually have silence. I mean, I was, I felt like I was never in a moment of silence. There was always someone in my ear bringing their reality, putting it front and center in my world. And, and I had to pay attention to them, focus on them and, and, and help them in some way. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting contradiction. <laughs> With the pastor's like the last one that gets to really pray, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a delight to be able to talk to you, Sean. Yeah, I'm glad you came. It's good to... But did any of the other folks have, have any questions or you can put them in the chat or... I was thinking as you guys were talking, I was wondering about, you know, you said you sort of started as an artist and then you went to become a monk and now you're kind of being an artist again in a sense so maybe returning to your original you know vocation as, as yeah. a writer is that yeah is that does that ring true or is it definitely yeah it definitely ring rings true um and why would you rather yeah because you'd rather do that than be a you know be a a teacher or or a yeah basically <laughs> uh, okay basically it was always my, my my a friend of mine who's a monk said you were always a better writer than a monk and then he and then he kind of caught himself because because he said it in a it was very honest and he said this when I was trying to figure out if I was going to leave the monastery and write or stay at the monastery and kind of teach and he said hey, you're a better writer than you are a monk and I was like yeah, okay <laughs> he's not wrong <laughs> but I think that just speaks to how bad a monk I was not necessarily being a decent writer. What are you what are you writing now? What do you what is your um I'm 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 I've been working on a novel, a first piece of fiction. Um so it's taken a long time and it's a long book that I'm gonna have to seriously chop down, but it's taking all these I had this idea when I was a monk. I was trying to figure out like a almost like a supernatural or spiritual, uh comical, satirical, futuristic fairy tale of sorts. So I'm calling it a fairy folktale from the future. Um, yeah, it's, it's a piece of fiction and it tries to incorporate all these different things we've been talking about tonight, but in a story with characters in a fictional fairy tale context. Very. Hmm. Coming soon to a Barnes and Noble near you, hopefully. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and what about, well, maybe there's anybody, does anybody have a question here? Can I, can I keep going and ask you another, another yeah, please. Kind of question. What, what about what about relationships? You, you you're you got to have a girlfriend now, and um, and I guess you did have a relationship at a, at a monastery, but it must be hard to have a relationship at a monastery. And and yeah. um, what about being a monk and 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 being in relationships? Is that does that go together or, or usually no. or what? I mean, it doesn't. We had a weird monastery. I mean, my teacher was, you know, it. 
he was always telling monks to get married. He was always telling us that marriage is the only true monastery in the West because you're trapped in this situation with your partner and you, you know, you, you're sort of raw and at ground zero with your emotions and that sort of thing. Um, it was nearly impossible as a monk, but nonetheless, T Roshi was always trying to pair students and monks off. And then once you got together, that was it. Basically, you were you had to leave the monastery because you couldn't really be a couple and be in a monastery. Um, but the style of Zen that he taught was really amenable to ultimately having a partner. Um, and and yeah, I have one now, and I really appreciate her. And I don't think I knew how to love before, as cheesy as that sounds. Like I had no idea what it. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't. I really didn't. I just didn't know what love was. You know. And I think. Roshi broke me through that. Um, and and his teachings were very explicitly about love, not necessarily human love, but um, what he called true love, which we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's- So what's the I, difference between human love and true love? Well, true love um, is the, what he would call the, activity of the dharmakaya which is this um that what the universe is doing spontaneously uh, coming together as one and then separating coming together separating coming together separating so i mean it's hard to <laughs> and human love is more like coming together and uh crashing into each other and becoming super attached to somebody and then suffering Basically. a lot Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he used to use, you know, the human relationships as a metaphor. So like he would shake my hand or give me a hug and he would say, now we're one, not separate. But then we have to separate. Now we're two and we can talk and exchange and interact and we come together one, no thinking, no talking, just one. And then, oh, we separate. Now self arises, myself, yourself, we talk, you know, and one, you know, two, one, two. That principle behind that is what he would call true love or to talk at the Zen. Mm -hmm. And 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 so but you said that after you after being a monk at the monastery, uh the then you were able to to uh experience that with another person when you weren't before. Yeah. Yeah. I did yeah. That's what I said. That's true. I'm just repeating what you said. I guess I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to try to understand that. Somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I mean, maybe you know, we talked about how tough the monastery was. I think, I think it broke me in a lot of ways, um, hmm. and I needed that. So, I mean, so yeah, well, like yeah, I, I guess that's what I was. I'm getting at is like you have to get broken. Uh, uh, it's I guess it's the letter the cliche letter Cohen line of of, of the crack or whatever. <laughs> you have yeah. to get broke broken for you to able to experience that kind of love instead of uh, you know just being hmm, I don't know the, whatever the other thing that people do is. <laughs> I needed it, I guess. I mean, I needed something that I was looking for it. You know, I was I was looking for something to give all of myself to, you know, and I thought it was going to 
sort of, I think I thought my, my unconscious expectation was that, that, that when you give yourself to the, to the thing that's true, which I felt this was, and I'd searched so long and, and thrown so many things out that I thought weren't true. When I found this thing that, and these people and this teacher that I thought was, and then I, my expectation was when I give myself to it, something will come of that. And then it didn't in the, in the way that I thought it would. And it did break me. Um, yeah. And I, and yeah, and, and I would, yeah, there, here I am able to love. <laughs> Is this the natural conclusion of, of, of our, of our conversation? Perhaps. <laughs> is this is this where we end up here you are able to love <laughs> yes it's like, cool. it's like a colleen hoover novel or something <laughs> yes pardon me what was, what was the last something thing? out of a colleen hoover novel a romance novel a romance novel yeah, romance. yeah. so you did all this training in zen so you can write romance novels now <laughs> right it's kind of what i'm doing is i was thinking about that the other novel that i'm working on it's kind of a love story yeah mm -hmm. true yeah. love story true love story right right um yeah. but is one only broken once should I, I mean i mean i hear your story it's like well is it possible that it happens again i mean i mean is it i don't know i'm just yeah, maybe 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 yeah probably the moment we think we've got it you know i mean it's, you know yeah it's true i mean it wasn't one moment in the mind I mean, it was like year after year you know every year was harder than the next and then the final thing with my teacher's sex scandal and the reality of the fact that he you know women were saying he'd harmed them and when the community fell apart like all of that is this crashing wave that of like disappointment <laughs> uh that just yeah i think all those things came together that i don't know was a big break and so to, to your point, I don't think it's just one thing. Yeah, you're right. It's over and over. Yeah. It's like, you know, I think about, I mean, I, I grab, I get a husband and get a son and good. And then suddenly today we're dealing with cancer with the son, you know? And so, so it's always that break, isn't it? That something, just something snaps that, that yeah, right. the dying happens and throws us out of our comfort area. And yeah. And you're but, in it again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. But, no, but, I, but my point is, is that, is that, you know, you think you have it. Like, I finally got what I always wanted. And then yeah. suddenly it it becomes not what you wanted. You're you know, totally right. that's Gorgeous. life. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's life. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a human condition. Yeah. Continually being, yeah, broken open. Continually being broken open. Yeah. It almost feels like when you're talking about Zen that it's it's there's something ridiculous about it because you're not really supposed to be talking about it. Or yeah. I'm getting that feeling a little bit like okay, th there's too much talking. But that's <laughs> but I I don't know is that no that's true. But that's but true. again, me and me and you do podcasts. <laughs> we write you know we write we want to express ourselves. But there's an embarrassment at the same time. <laughs> yeah, there is an embarrassment. What? Yeah, yeah. My teacher used to say, Roshi used to say, like, whenever people start, if they talk long enough, sooner or later, they start fighting or lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let them talk long enough. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, somebody wrote something in the chat. 
Where is it? You can't choose Zen meditation. What kind of meditation? Uh, if you can't choose Zen meditation, what kind of meditation would? So I think the question is, if you if you can't do Zen meditation, what kind of meditation do you do? Mm. I mean, you know, it's kind of the when I was with the Shambhala group, I did more of a mindfulness or a vipassana type practice where if you had a thought you would notice it observe and say maybe thinking or emoting and then let let it go and give your attention back to the breath so when i did that practice it was a little bit more mindful and when i started doing zen practice you know my teacher would say well who's doing the watching who's doing the noting who's being mindful you give yourself completely and dissolve that thinking mind dissolve the observer so there's just nothing, zero, just breath, you know? And then the self arises again and you start thinking and then your activity is to give it away again. So other than that, I'm, I don't know what other kind of meditation there really is. To me, that's the simplest and, and most basic version is some form of mindfulness uh, and then just giving yourself, throwing yourself into the breath. Or if you're in the kitchen chopping, Tomatoes, throwing yourself into that. Or if you're raking leaves, throwing yourself into that. So Zazen is just, it's just sitting Zen. Za is sitting, sitting Zen. But there's walking Zen, there's living Zen, there's email Zen, there's podcast Zen. There's, you know, any activity that you're focusing on with single point of concentration and dying into, that's Zen. Um, mm -hmm. But you said, you said podcast Zen. Uh, <laughs> So <laughs> what, is that, right? what is that? I don't know. How do we do podcasts then? How do we, how do we do that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you know, trying to be honest, maybe instead of filling the silence, which is what I feel like I've done tonight, I get worked up and I just start like a wind up toy and I just start going, but probably being a little bit less voluable and a little more contemplative in, in my case, but but same thing, I think paying attention to to you, you know, and the conversation and not getting too caught up in myself as much as I can, not thinking about myself, losing myself. Losing yourself in the activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's hard to do in this context because there's always this background audience it's hard to do when you have an audience you know it's hard harder hard hard to do it's because you're watching yourself you know you don't want to say anything stupid or hurtful mm -hmm. or something don't get you canceled <laughs> you know you're you're afraid to be canceled, you yeah. get canceled. <laughs> mm -hmm. well I, I we've had lots of canceled people on on oh. our, our podcast we, we go we, we look for canceled people I, yeah kind of noticed that. i was looking at i was looking you guys got some great people come come coming through here actually yeah i think so too yeah there's a, we, we were very lucky to talk to a lot of people like actually i talked to andrew cohen who was severely canceled oh. he had a, he had a world he had a, a world community and everything just collapsed on under absolutely everything um i had a very yeah, interesting a conversation with him in the scandal community yeah i'm gonna have to watch that one because i saw that but i didn't actually watch it but i saw it on your on your channel yeah uh-huh he he described you know have being being this major countercultural guru in the united states and with friends with ken wilbur and then to to being the biggest pariah you know 
And the world, it wasn't sexual scandals in his case. It was, it was, it was that he was sort of pushing his students too hard and yeah, and he was very uh, repentative about it. So I, I really enjoyed talking about him. He really, he seemed to wanted to admit what he did and and, and, and to understand what was happening. And it, 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 it so I, it's like if we just cancel somebody and never talk to them again, it doesn't seem to be much love in that. <laughs> yeah, or or much yeah you don't you, yeah or much wisdom really yeah yeah it's probably great to hear people who've gone through that and just hear what they have to say. I'll have to watch that video. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in any case, um, uh, it's it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you and getting to know you a little bit, and and thank you very much for for coming. And um, I'm, I'm, I've been wanting to talk about Zen with somebody for a long time. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's such a good time. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so anyway, check out uh, uh, Shosen's wonderful, hilarious, and profound and and beautiful uh, YouTube channel called um i just forgot the name uh zen confidential. confidential zen no what is it yeah zen confidential zen confidential yes indeed okay so thanks again good night everybody <laughs>